Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Scott Miller. He's the creator and host of On Leadership with a staggering 6 million listeners, including me. He's a best-selling author, father of three, and husband. Let's dive in. I listened to a couple of your episodes, and in one of your episodes, you said that you push together your lips so that you don't interrupt. Yes. Touch them together. Close them together and let them touch. It's it's a good linguistics technique because you can't speak when your lips are closed. So you want to hear my technique? I'd love it. I hit the mute button. You just talk and no one knows. (laughs) But I'm not smart enough to unmute it. So I would just keep going. (laughs) This past week, my husband witnessed two people losing their jobs. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because you've been at the same company for 25 years, right? Yeah, 25 at Franklin Covey. And before that, almost five at the Disney company. So you're practically a lifer. Yeah. I don't know if you've had to fire people, but you've seen people fired. I have terminated dozens of people in my career. Yes. What happens before that point? Yeah, I think it depends on the circumstance. Sometimes you have people, because of their competence, they're a wrong fit for the organization. They might have competence in other areas. It doesn't mean they're incompetent. It means that the competence that they possess is not right for the job that they're in or the company that they're in. Sometimes you have issues with their character. Their competence could be high but they're low on character and their character or their personality or their traits are incongruent with the values, the culture of your organization. Regardless of the reason, you always go into this humanely. You don't want to humiliate anyone. You don't want to damage their self-esteem or their self-worth, their self-confidence. What I usually do is I role play it and I practice it with someone who's maybe more wise or senior than I am because my intent quote you, is to make sure that they remain confident about who they are as a person. Everyone has to work somewhere, but not everyone has to work here. And because you shouldn't work here doesn't mean you shouldn't thrive somewhere else. So what I do is I usually go into the conversation and I let the news out immediately. I say, Reen, I've called you in today to let you know a decision has been made to eliminate your position. This is a non-reversible decision. Beginning this afternoon at four o'clock, you will no longer work for XYZ company. Now, I want you to know, I appreciate that can be upsetting news. You're going to have a whole realm of emotions. But as a respect to you, I wanted to not prolong that conversation with you up front. What I'd like to do is let you catch your breath for a moment. I'd like to share with you why this decision has been made. Talk about how this is going to impact you. Talk about what the organization is going to do to make sure that this is as painless on you as possible, including any severance we can offer you, how we will or will not be helping you find another job, and that I'd like to give you some coaching on areas in which I think you can help to land a new career that better is aligned with your, you know. Anyway, you get the point, right? I, I share the news very clear up front. I try to do it as matter-of-factly as possible without sounding like a robot. I make sure they know the decision is not reversible, that no matter what you do, we're not going to change the decision. So gather your emotions. Nothing is going to change the decision then that relieves people from thinking they can bargain 
or they can manipulate or they can do anything, right? Their emotions now go into problem solving. And then I usually let them gather themselves. People go to everything from, oh my gosh, how do I pay the rent tomorrow? To what do I tell my partner or spouse? Everyone goes to different fears. I don't usually use the word fire because people take that very personally. I don't like that term. You still can be straight and vulnerable and accurate by saying your job has been eliminated. And you can talk about all their strengths, their talents, their passions. You can buoy them up. You can talk about how you've got a great career. Don't let today define your future. Sometimes when a disappointment comes, it's really an appointment, an appointment for something else. Has your job ever been eliminated? I've been fired. Disney fired me. Totally. I've been fired three times. You know what? Being fired three times was the worst three days of my life, and it was the best three days of my life because they usually acted upon me when I didn't have the courage to act on myself. They usually saw something that I was too blind to see, whether it was my technical skills, my interpersonal skills, wrong job, wrong time. And that usually the day after I was fired was the best day of my life because they liberated me to go do something else, right? What did you do the day after you were fired? I probably thought a lot about how I was gonna pay the rent the next month. I probably got really clear on, I need to have a garage sale and sell some of my stuff because I got to raise money. I don't tend to be a sulker. I tend to live in reality probably too much. And I probably dropped a few F-bombs. And then I got busy on figuring out, I'm not going to let you define my life. Thank you for the courage that took. I'm sure that wasn't easy. And I got on with my life pretty quickly. I love that. Tell me about working at Disney. I like this podcast already. Disney was amazing. I started there when I was 23. I worked there for almost, not quite five years. I was on the Disney development side. So Disney development company is the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company. They build the cruise ships. They build the hotels. They build the theme parks. And they sell them back to the Walt Disney Company to operate. So I was on the front line of all the development. I worked in a project called Celebration. It's a town that Disney built in Florida. I was one of the first 40 employees. Amazing group of people very competent, high ethics, high character, lots of resources, a very conservative culture, very buttoned down culture, probably the wrong culture for my personality. But I learned so much. And I have uh, great friendships from that. I look back on very fond days at the Disney company. I think they're a great organization. I've actually interviewed at Disney, but I think I ended up working on a reality show instead. It was too buttoned up for me too. Yeah, but you know what Disney did for me? Disney gave me the gift of quality standard. Quality stand. They, they do not cut corners. I mean, the amount of money that Disney invests in their movies, in their characters, their experiences, in the guest experience, it's all about the guest experience, and they do not cut corners. When you see the parade coming down Main Street, the number of times they have rehearsed that, trained their people, backups, costumes, stitching, to model of measure twice and cut once. Disney gets it right every time they don't cut corners. So they set in me a quality standard that was a gift they gave to me that I'll always be grateful for. And it's such an impressionable age. That was like right out of college for you, right? It was. It was during college, actually. I had spent several years on a U.S. presidential campaign back in 1986, 87, 88. That candidate then won the presidency went on to the White House. You can figure out who it was in 88, George H.W. Bush. I'm a big fan. And then I went into real estate, kind of bouncing around a little bit. 
And then Disney Company came calling and I had a great career, four years. How did they get your number? I worked as a waiter in a restaurant through college, a little bakery and cafe. And I was waiting on someone. And this woman used to work at a local museum as like a fundraiser curator. Well, the museum fired her and she went on to work for Disney. I then left that restaurant and worked for another restaurant as a waiter while I was in college. And she came and I started waiting on her. And she asked me if I wanted to do an internship at Disney. And I said, sure. And so she hired me as an intern. And of course, I was savvy enough to turn it into a career and, a, and a, a job. I was 23 years old back in 1992, Rena, making $36,000 a year. That was like bank. That was bank money 27 years ago. And so it was me taking good care of a customer in two restaurants as a waiter working for tips that turned into the Disney job. Disney fired me. The Franklin Covey Company came and hired me because they met me at Disney, ironically. And here I am 25 years later, a best-selling author, seven figures. My entire career is the result of people believing in me more than I believed in myself. And one thing led to another and another and another. I can track it all back to working at a farmer's market on Saturday selling bread for this bakery. And it's all culminated on Better Call Daddy's podcast. <laughs> Man, you've been friending up for a long time, I've huh? been friending up, girl. You've read my books. I've been friending up. Can you define that? I don't know if I coined this phrase or not. It doesn't matter, but I lived by it. Some people misinterpret this, so I'd ask your listeners to check in. Friending up is a strategy that I've always employed, meaning I associate myself with people who are smarter than me, who are wiser than me, who are older than me, who are better educated than me, who've made more successes than I have, who've made more mistakes than I have, who've traveled more than me, who are wealthier than me. I've always, since my teens, I have friended up because that's where I learned. You know, my fraternity brothers were out, you know, pounding beer bongs and I was, you know, sitting in the mayor's office or at the superintendent's office or, you know, on a presidential campaign or working with someone in their brokerage firm, listening and learning. And so for 25 years, how I built my skills and my career, my network was friending up. People who are smarter than me in most cases took me under their wing and let me shadow. Now, a lot of people think that I was using them. No, no, no. These people were smarter than me. I was not using them, right? But what's beautiful, Rena, is now 25, 30 years later, these people are now in their 70s and 80s. I'm helping them launch their podcast. I'm helping them get their book deal. I'm helping them plan their estate. I'm helping them have tough conversations with their grandkids. And so it's come full circle. These people I'm all good friends with. They all are taking delight in any success that I've had because they see the contribution. My gift to your listener is be really thoughtful about who you hang around with. You know, now I'm 52. I've had some success. I'm hanging around people that are in their 70s. They're chairmen of major airlines. They own hotel chains. They have billions of dollars. And they're investing in me. I'm investing in them. And people are friending up to me. I have a lot of people in their younger 20s and 30s who are asking me for advice. It's kind of like the circle of life. And I just was really maniacal about it. And it turned out well for me. And now I'm paying back for those who are friending up to me too. I love how you said people are friending up to you now versus calling it friending down. Because I was yeah. wondering, have you ever, you know, friended down? I don't want to quantify friending up as just smarts or just money. It's a combination. I friended up a lot of wise people that had less career success than me. I'm a religious person, I'm a Catholic. And so I friended up to a lot of Monsignors because I think they're wise people. I don't quantify 
your worth by just one definition. And I have a lot of friends that are down on their luck. I don't call it friending down. That's a funny term. I'm sure some are friending down to me, so I'm okay with that. I'm not easily offended. I think I easily offend people. I understand most people's intent is good, so I try to judge them by how they treat me versus maybe a word they use or whatever. How do you build trust? By doing what you say you're going to do, by not over-promising, by apologizing without attachments or excuses. You build trust through your behavior. You build trust by not gossiping about people, that you don't disparage people in their absence. You say, gosh, you know, Rena, I know your intention wasn't to hurt her feelings, but I'll bet if she heard that, that would hurt her feelings. So I advise you to go tell her that directly. And if I have the same issue, I will as well. I think you build trust by talking straight, by being vulnerable, by admitting your mistakes, by being a light, not a judge, by being a model, not a critic. I don't think you can say you're trustworthy. Other people determine if you are trustworthy. How do you write your wrongs? An apology that's sincere with no attachments is enough. Some people need you to bow deeper. They want recompense. Some people want you to humiliate yourself. Now, I'm not saying you should do any or all of those, right? But you know, the golden rule is treat people how you wanted to be treated. The platinum rule is treat people how they want to be treated. And everybody wants to be treated differently. So I think how you write wrongs is how that person needs you to write it while you still keep your self-respect, right? There might be some people that are insatiable and you might need to walk away. I don't put myself in situations where I would have to humiliate myself because I'm pretty wise about who I associate with. I clarify expectations up front. I am brutally courageous when it comes to this is what I need from you and this is what I am offering you. Because I think most conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. How did you meet your wife? I was a confirmed bachelor. I was living in Chicago. I was 39, had not been in a serious relationship for years. I kind of had my heart broken in my early 20s, threw myself into my career for 15 years. Honestly, didn't date. Everyone was convinced I was gay. I just having a great life, right? I was a single guy making bank and traveling the world, lots of friends. I kind of thought I would never get married, which I was okay with because I didn't really want children. Life was good. Life was great. And I met the gym and there's this really attractive girl over there. I thought, you know what? I'd like to be friends with her. So I asked her to go to dinner and she says, no, get my car, I drive home. I'm like, WTF? I get back in my car. I drive back to the gym. I walk back downstairs and I say, I don't want to have your kids. I just want to go to dinner. She was dating someone quite seriously who I thought was her brother. It was her boyfriend that came to gym, the gym with her. And so she went home and said, hey, that loud mouth from the gym asked me out for dinner. He's like, you can go to dinner. She's thinking, well, that's not a good sign. So we go to dinner. We go to a champagne bar, downtown Chicago. She was 12 years younger than me. I didn't know that. Had a great dinner. Kind of fell in love. Went back to her boyfriend. They broke up. It was all very amicable. He came to our wedding. We were invited to his wedding. We're still friends to this day. We dated for a year. We're engaged for a year. I moved back to Utah. She came back out with me, got engaged, had three boys in five years. Don't do that. But I recognized this person made my life better. And if I wanted to marry her, then I needed to agree to have children. And I don't regret that. I had three kids in five years. 
if people can see us on screen right now, we're both like blowing our brains out, right? And what's funny is my three boys all have my personality, which is not a good thing. We're very blessed with healthy boys. And my wife's been very patient, full-time mom, stay-at-home mom. I pray for patience and I got a bonus child. I had three in five years, then I waited five years and I had another one at 39. I look like Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone. I'm beheading, I'm putting my face up, my hands up against my cheeks right now. Wow. Wow. Different podcast, different topic, right? I have three boys and a girl. Congratulations. Thank you. You too. That is a untraditional story. Yeah. Plus 12 years difference, right? It was a big difference in the beginning. All of her parents thought I was, you know, bringing her back to Utah for a polygamous marriage because Utah has a bad rap. And here I am, this like single Catholic boy, a, you know, good guy, I think, an executive at a company and worked out well. There's been ups and downs. Kids will try to steal your marriage from you. I swear our boys plot every night, how can we destroy their marriage tomorrow, right? And they try to run that ball to the end zone every day. And some days they're pretty damn successful, are they not? And we got oh, like, yes. to hunker down, we got to foil their plot. I didn't speak to my boys for two days last week. I'm so angry at them. I literally, I did not speak to them for two solid days because I like wanted to quit. You ever been there? Yes, last week, my 12-year-old and my 9-year-old decided to put on boxing gloves and box each other. Now, my 12-year-old weighs close to what I weigh, Yeah. and my 8-year-old weighs 60 pounds. It did not end well, and well, <laughs> thank daily. God that's we daily, didn't need mom. stitches. Totally, that's daily. My 6-year-old took an iPad, an 800 iPad, and threw it in the ground and cracked it last week because he was pissed that he couldn't use or download some game. His Easter basket, his Halloween costume, his birthday, his Christmas, all that's going together to pay for that iPad. Yeah, he, he won't see nothing for a year. Do you know how many times a day I'm like, no more videos? I know, it's been a tough, you know what? It's been a really tough five months for everybody, right? And do not let your children ruin your sanity. Do not let your children ruin your marriage. Do not let your children second guess your ability to be a sane person because they will try. Have you found yourself going on more walks? Well, you know, we have a six-year-old going on three. So we have not really been able to like leave the three of them alone. It sounds crazy, but I mean, it's actually, it's actually only five. It's even six yet. So we've gone on a couple of walks, but not enough because our oldest is like classic, the angel oldest child, the middle lacks a conscience. Right. He's just, you know, he's like self-absorbed. The youngest one doesn't really care about anything other than himself and getting what he wants. So our walk time needs to be like fast, like nine minutes, right? Because you could come back and the place could be on fire. What were you like as a child? The same. <laughs> it was fun, happy, gregarious, self-absorbed, irresponsible, didn't think about consequences, zero attention span, very creative. I cared about people's feelings but not about their stuff. And I didn't really mature into an adult probably until my mid-20s. Tell me what those books were. First book is Multipliers. It's a book by Liz Wiseman. It's one of the best leadership books ever written. And Liz talks about a leader's job is not to be the smartest person in the room. Your job is not to be the genius, but your job is to be the genius maker of others. And she identifies nine accidental diminisher tendencies that every leader has. We're always diminishing people accidentally unless you're a sociopath, and our job is to become a multiplier. I, the best leadership book I've ever read. The other book, read it, is a book called Range, R-A-N-G-E. came out a year ago by a guy named David Epstein. 
And the book basically debunks a lot of Malcolm Gladwell's work on the 10,000 hours to be an expert. And he doesn't take issue with Malcolm, although they, they debated it lively, I think, on some YouTube thing. He basically talks about how in the world, professionally, there are generalists and there are specialists. I don't know what I am. And you're really insecure in your 20s and your 30s. And I think something clicks in your 40s. And you realize, I'm all of that. I can write. I can speak. I can lead. I can manage. I can speak to 5,000 people or 500 people. I can write a book. I can write a blog. And all that begins to congeal in your 40s. And then you really leverage it in your 50s and your 60s. And those are the CEOs. Those are the CMOs. Those are the CFOs. Those are the chief revenue officers and organizations. Not all the time, but often. And so for me, I realized I've been a generalist all my life. And all that knowledge, that bandwidth is now really coming into play. One is not better than the other. But I think it's helpful to give voice to all the generalists out there. It's okay. Be patient. I do feel like you have it all. You've got a podcast. You've got a book. You're a leader. You're... You know, your wife's at home with the three boys. That's Do right. you still remember what it was like to start the podcast or to birth the book? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It was horrible. Let me tell you. Now, I've written four books. Two of them are bestsellers and two come out next year, right? I had a radio program on iHeartRadio. I decided to host a podcast. 140 episodes in it is the largest distributed and sub subscribed leadership podcast in the world. 140 episodes in. The first episode. I'm calling up our agents and our publicists saying, I need a guest. Like, I need a guest by three o'clock today because we're going live tomorrow. And they thought I was the most disorganized, psycho, you know, just crazy. Like, Scott, no one does this. And the next week, I'm like, I need a new guest. Like, in 24 hours, I got to have someone. Who do you got? I'll take anybody. For the first five or six weeks, I looked like the most disorganized, crazy poser ever. But I got on camera, read their book. I asked good questions. They referred me in the next one. And here we are, 140 episodes in, and it goes to 6 million people 20 times a week. Can I be in your podcast? And 19 times I'd say, I'm sorry. No, Catherine Schwarzenegger's coming on. Maria Shriver's coming on. Rachel Hollis is coming on, right? I mean, you know, the first episodes, I had no idea what I was doing. I was talking way too much. I was laughing too much. I was making it all about me. I had to find my groove, so stick with it, right? There is something to be said for sticking with something and not listening to everyone. Whose feedback am I going to value? And I picked about two or three people who I knew had my best interest at heart, and I blocked everybody else out, and I just gave them, like, carte blanche. To this day, these are the same three people that have helped to steer this podcast. Don't let the peanut gallery take you down. Don't let the jealousies. Haters going to hate. I listened to Stephen Covey episode where he said, your word is your bond. I like that one. Yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, that was so good. Wow. Thank you for saying yes to me. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? I am so honored. You have such great energy. You have great questions. You're real. You've got a great Upstart podcast. I'm honored to be on your podcast. So can, I, can I give you some insight? I interviewed John Maxwell. John Maxwell is one of the most prolific leadership authors in history. 70 books. I interviewed Jack Canfield. Jack Canfield is one of the two authors of the Chicken Soup for the Soul brand. 500 million copies sold. 500 million copies. I interviewed Gary Chapman, the author of the book, Five Love Languages. These guys have more money than God. These guys have sold a billion books. 
these guys are still on five to seven podcasts every week because they're grateful, because they're honored, because they're humble, because they want to give back. And I'm nothing even close to their realm. But I tell you, I am honored to be on your program. We're all helping each other, right? We're all helping our listeners learn some insights, take away some nuggets. The honor is mine, Rena. I appreciate that. I'm totally building this to try to get better at interviewing and because I'm super curious and have a ton of questions. Well, listen, if I could ever be a bridge to anybody on one of my podcasts that you have a respect for and you like their work, I would be honored to reach out to them and vouch for you and have them appear in yours. You just tell Aww, me. That is so sweet of you. Okay, final question. Tell me about your daddy. My dad is still alive. He's 83. His name is Ken. My father's had an interesting life. His father died when he was 10 years old of cancer. His twin brother caught polio at the age of 16 and spent 10 years in an iron lung and then died. So in essence, my dad was kind of raised without parents because his dad was gone. And then his mother was either caring for his twin brother or was in mourning. So my father is a self-made man. He still lives in the house that I was born in 57 years. Been married to my mother for 57 years. My father's not college educated. He worked very hard at a defense contractor you know as Lockheed Martin. Back in the day, it was Martin Marietta. He was forced into early retirement in his early 50s. So he's been retired for 30 years, which is you think about the income he lost for 25 years, but the joy he's had tinkering in his garage and going to flea markets and antique markets and with his grandkids, my brother's kids. He's a good man. He raised my brother and I to be very strong Catholic men. And I honor him for instilling in us good values. My dad hasn't done everything right in life, but I think generally he's done a really solid, honorable life and been loyal to my, my mom and been a good dad to me. And I honor my father for hard work. My father doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. My father bought my brother a Stingray Corvette when he was 16 years old, while my father was driving a dilapidated like 1970 Volkswagen Beetle to work. My father does not care what people think about him. And sometimes that really bugs me. And sometimes I think he knows something I don't know. My father's actually a lot like that, minus the Corvette. As a kid, I didn't like it, but now I have an appreciation for it. Yeah, me too. Because I'm like, me too. wow, he's yeah. just comfortable in his own skin. Yeah, what a yeah I like, thing. Dad, could you like, could you tuck your shirt in? We're going to the St. Regis for dinner for Thanksgiving. Can you care just like a little bit? Right? <laughs> Oh my God. I mean, my dad is like an East Coaster and he raised me in Kentucky. So, you know, he came to Kentucky with his Cadillacs and his Lincoln Town cars. And I'm like, can you pick me up down the block? That's embarrassing. Oh, that's awesome. My father once bailed me out of a big bind. I made a commitment when I was in 12th grade. I was the student body president of my high school. And I made a commitment to co-host like this elegant dinner party with another senior. They owned a hotel in town. They were very kind of high class. And I, made, I, I ordered a check, metaphor that I couldn't cash. I said, yeah, I'll fund it. My share was $250. Like the mother kept asking for my share of the money. Well, the gig was up. Like I owed the money that night. I go to my dad one week before Christmas, like December 18th, said, dad, I got a problem. I said, I owe $250 to Mrs. Spang for a Christmas party. My dad looked at me, opened his drawer and took out $250 and he handed it to me and he said, this is your Christmas gift. Now, by the way, I was not getting $250 Christmas gifts. Like 
not even close, like maybe $70 all in. But my dad somehow realized he was saving me some humiliation and decided he would teach me a lesson differently. Most dads would say, no, sorry, get on your moped and go tell Mrs. Bang, you can't come up with it. For some reason, my dad decided not to humiliate me. He decided to teach me a lesson some other way. He gave me $250. How does a dad have $250 back in the 80s? I don't know. We didn't. I put the money in my motor scooter. I drove it over to Mrs. Spang, and I handed it to her as like, no problem. Had it all along, right? Gave her the money. And to this day, I've never borrowed a dollar from my dad. So the lesson worked. It taught me you can teach someone a lesson without humiliating them in the hopes they rise to the occasion. I love that story. And I wonder if that even plays into you not wanting to humiliate people in the way that yeah. you fire them. Yeah. Yeah. You never know what's going on with someone. You never know what's somebody's story, right? You never know what's going on in someone's life, their marriage, their finances, what's going on with their health. It's taught me to be a little more compassionate. I have struggles around that. I'm a pretty firm person. I need to be more gentle, more compassionate, more caring. But it's taught me that when it happens to my son, I'm going to determine, does the lesson need to be taught right this moment or could it be taught some other time, right? My dad taught me some lessons. Oh, I had been suspended in the air by his hand at my neck many times. Oh, my dad was not a pansy, right? 6'3", 245. Many times I was suspended in the air. You said what to your mother? My neck is up against the wall. Unfortunately, I can relate to that too. Yeah. yeah. Rena, it's been a pleasure. I'm honored to be on your guest. If I can be your champion, if I can help you, if I can pay it back by allowing you to friend up one rung, one rung to me, right? There's not more than one rung between you and me. I'd be honored. Thank you so much. And actually, that was the nicest being fired situation at the beginning of the podcast oh, that I've you. ever experienced. <laughs> You're awesome. Thank you so much. This is a great time. You've heard from my mom. Now, let's hear from Grandpa. Oh my God, Scott Miller is an incredible leader. Didn't you just love him? I thought he was terrific. And he also has learned a lot of the lessons of life. That interview was just full of it. You got back to it by asking about his father and you made the connection yourself that when he was in trouble and had his back up against the wall, he gave him the money to back him up. Humility is a big part of his vocabulary. There's a lot of great lessons and examples that he brought up in his interview. How many times have I told you that I also was getting a great benefit? It's not measured in dollars and cents. And those people that are really successful and have experience in a broad range of experiences across many, many, many areas where they learn how to do a lot of the things themselves, but they're willing to ask others that are smarter than them to help them and to learn. And they're willing to share that back to other people that are also enthusiastic and growing and learning too. And I think that's a lot of the lesson from this interview. We all have our own unique map, which helps us understand ourselves and others. Increased self-awareness is key in maximizing your career and life. The UMAP assessment reveals your strengths, values, skills, and interests. There is also a UMAP Youth Assessment for Kids. To get your personalized UMAP, go to myumap.com. 
and make sure you use the code BCD, like better call daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.